0: Episode 455 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm back, Stuart Baker, the host of the program, when Brian Fleming is not. The views we're gonna express are not the opinions of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, our pets, really anybody, maybe not even ours. Two weeks from today. Joining me for the the news roundup, Adam Kandub, who's a professor at Michigan State University Law School. Michael Ellis, formerly with House Intelligence and the National Security Council, and now a visiting fellow at Heritage. Justin Sherman, who's a senior fellow at Duke University School of Policy and the CEO of Global Cyber Strategies. And as I said, I'm Stuart Baker, host and chief provocateur for the day. I think our listeners are probably going to get a little tired of Section 702 discussions as the perils of Pauline are reenacted between now and December 31, when the program has to be renewed or it dies. But there were a couple of 702-related stories that I thought were worth covering, probably more data than we've had about 702 up to now. Michael?
1: Now, you're right, Stuart. There's certainly going to be no shortage of 702 stories for the next seven months until the, the statutory deadline for the reauthorization of the program. But we have a couple interesting data points this past week. The first is that ODNI released the annual statistical transparency report on FISA authorities covering 2022. This is an annual report that, that they're required to do by statute. And the the, the big headline coming out of this report is that the number of U.S. person queries carried out by the FBI in 2022 dropped quite dramatically. You may recall from prior episodes of of this podcast that the FBI had reported a whopping 3.4 million queries of U.S. person information in the 702 database in 2021. Well, that number is now down to about 200,000. Or if you Use the adjusted counting method that removes some deduplicates. One hundred twenty thousand queries for U.S. person information in the seven hundred two data. Now, the upshot of that it may it may be more limited in import than than the administration would hope. The critics of the program are still going to say that one hundred twenty thousand is an awfully large number of U.S. person queries that they believe should be carried out only with a warrant or some sort of other court order support or probable cause. Whereas supporters of the program will point to the Significant decrease, and and what's to what's to explain that decrease? Well, that's one of the other stories that you noted, Stuart. That the FBI has released its November 2021 query guidance. So after that 3.4 million number in 2021, the FBI realized that it it had an issue. The FBI has known for quite a while that it had an issue with the implementation of U.S. person queries in its 72 data. It released guidance this past week that was issued way back in November 2021, imposing some pretty robust administrative controls on how the queries can be carried out, like having a lawyer actually review a batch query of more than 100 identifiers in the in the 702 data. And it, you know, so it seems like those, those guidance documents actually did have a real effect. The improved training did have an effect on the FBI, causing the numbers to drop significantly. But I think it's still going to be well short of what the critics were looking for out of the FBI, and it's unlikely to really satisfy anyone.
0: Yeah. Well, nothing will satisfy the critics here except getting rid of the program. It it is interesting, and I should, for people who haven't been deep in this, the 702 database is the database of intercepts that were carried out Under Section 702, which is to say they were focused on a target overseas who was using U.S. facilities, sending messages into the United States and the like. Once those have been justified as a legitimate target for intelligence purposes, they are intercepted, and about 5% of them that may relate to an ongoing FBI investigation are made available to the FBI to search and that's the database that they have been searching in so it's a database of stuff that was already relevant and already authorized by law but not with a warrant because it was a it was targeted at a non-american and so this database is sitting there like so many other databases that the FBI has access to so when you're doing an investigation and you want to know gee was this guy that I'm looking at tied up somehow in an international incident? Are they possibly tied into some counterintelligence investigation? You can search the 702 database. The theory, as I understand it from the people who really want to cripple this program with a warrant requirement is, well, this is the first time you've actually focused on the American and before the government focuses on an American and his communications, you ought to get a warrant. That's the theory. I I think that's wrong. Usually when the government collects data lawfully, it gets to keep it lawfully and use it in under investigations. This has tended to be kind of in a middle ground, and it has now a lot of restrictions that were put in place. Actually, if you don't like the two-point Nine million. If you walked back a a year earlier, it was 850,000. So I think the 120,000 queries uh, to the database are almost certainly a reduction from around 800,000, which is a pretty substantial one and probably tied to the 2021 procedures. I guess my question for you, Michael, is are we really glad to see this? Because it turned out that a couple million of those queries last year were a single cyber case where the Russians were attacking critical infrastructure. And if you read between the lines, it seems pretty clear that the searches were designed to find people who were victims of that attack. And I, frankly, I don't, th- I don't want anybody waiting to get a warrant before they tell me that I'm being targeted by the Russians for a cyber attack. So I, I, I'm not sure we should be celebrating entirely the reduction in numbers, especially for these victim searches.
1: Well, it's also entirely possible that the the same searches for victim notification purposes are going on. That's the bulk of the 120,000 or 200,000, depending on how you count it number. And they're just being more targeted in how they search and just being a little smarter about it. Because after all, once everyone knows that the number of searches will, will be reported publicly in an annual report, then of course people start becoming careful about how they search right and yep. and pay attention to how the numbers are counted uh, so you you still might get to the same result of of still allowing the FBI to learn about victims of a cyber attack or there could also be obviously ways without using 702 data to to achieve the same the same effect i mean NSA and CIA also have access to 702 data and conduct many fewer US person queries obviously they have different different missions in the FBI but uh you know, they might be able to skin the same cat with different methods. I'd also point out that in this report that I know we've been focusing on 702, it was also an interesting drop-off in so-called traditional FISA orders in 2022, that the the number of court orders under Title I of FISA, so orders that are obtained from the FISC under a probable cost standard, dropped from around 500 in 2020 to around 400 in 2021 to 337 in 2022. So there's a steady downward trend in the number of individual orders approved by the FISC, it's not clear to me based on the report. There's very little context or color commentary. Whether that's because of additional administrative requirements that they're being more careful now in the wake of the Carter Page debacle and the the Horowitz report that has added additional checks and they're being a little more thorough in those applications, or if there are other background factors that's leading to that
0: decrease. I'm guessing it's that plus there are fewer agents working counterterrorism cases, which was always a good place to get FISA intercepts. And it just may be that fewer agents working those cases against those targets, plus more work for the agents that are uh, has produced the, the decline.
1: I'd hope that those agents have been reassigned to China cases and are using FISA uh, against those targets. Fair (laughs) enough, yes. I I, I think... But maybe uh, not.
0: Secretary Ray said that the FBI agents are outnumbered 50 to 1 by Chinese spies, or at least Chinese spies plus hackers. So, yes, you'd think it would be a target-rich environment. Okay, let's talk about, uh, while we're on China, the story in Ars Technica saying China is really ramping up its efforts to build cyber weapons to attack and hijack take over enemy satellites and when they say enemy satellites they mean
2: ours Justin how big a surprise was this story surprising and not surprising this document this revelation rather came out as part of these classified document leaks onto discord and so this is as you said in ours Technica written up but pulled uh, reportedly from a, a CIA document but I don't find this surprising at all. We've obviously been much more attuned, I think, in the cybersecurity space to satellites over the last 14 or so months with Ukraine and with Starlink and everything else the Russians have been doing to disrupt communications in this space. And so it's not surprising to me at all that similarly the Chinese government is thinking about ways to hijack and, and deny this kind of traffic. You know, one thing worth noting, right, is I think there has been a lot of media hype about satellites, especially with Musk and with Starlink during the war and how satellites are the frontier of information sharing and all this kind of stuff, when in reality, right, fiber optics remain far faster, far cheaper, far better for transmitting internet data and remain the the main way of transmitting internet data. Of course, the flip side of that, as you said, and, and as is mentioned in these papers, is that you know, satellites are very useful for plenty of intelligence and military things. And so definitely not good that they are, in China, developing the capabilities to disrupt that.
0: Yeah, this is one more reminder of how easy it is to get fat, dumb, and happy when your military is mostly fighting against people who don't even have an army. And everything from the assumption that our forward operating bases are basically going to be unattackable or at least completely defensible, that the command posts will always be safe behind multiple lines of protection, that our satellites will always work. These are all very fragile assets when you're fighting a real army. And the satellites are an enormously expensive and fragile asset that have really depended on the idea that, well, nobody's going to dare to take them out were the United States. And that's probably true unless somebody is ready to fight us. But the Chinese are getting ready to. You never know when the North Koreans will decide they ought to. And the Russians were quite willing to hack a U.S. satellite system in order to disadvantage the Ukrainians. So how long this becomes a completely comfortable, safe mechanism by which we demonstrate our power around the world? Hard to say. Adam, the Supreme Court just cannot leave cyberspace alone. I guess they were sort of stuck here. They had a conflict, but they've taken what may be actually one of the smallest cyberspace issues that could plausibly go to the Supreme Court.
3: (laughs) Yeah, they're like, you know, you know, like, like mice, they like to nibble around the edges of the big piece of cheese. But, you know, this case involves whether public officials, when they use Facebook uh, or where they use Twitter to conduct meetings or to communicate with constituents, whether they create a public forum in which the First Amendment would apply. So this is a sort of a public forum test. Previously, you know, this came up with President Trump's Twitter feed, famously, in which the Second Circuit ruled that that was a public forum so that President Trump could not block people willy-nilly and, of course, had to face First Amendment restrictions when doing so. And in the wake of that decision, which the court was was taken on that and the court denied it in a very well-researched, with a very well-researched concurrence by Justice Thomas. But in the wake of that decision, the lower courts have come up with a bunch of tests, two main tests for Determining whether a public forum is created when a public official uses Facebook or Twitter to communicate with the public, and the the dominant test, which the Ninth Circuit adopted, and also I think I think you could probably say the the second, fourth, and eighth was that pretty much if you give the appearance that this is a public this is an open public forum where any citizen can come talk to the public official if you give the appearance that what you're doing is soliciting comments generally that is a public forum and most of the cases distinguish that from situations where it was used for campaign purposes but then out of the Sixth Circuit came another decision which seemed to restrict that, saying it's only when public officials are using their, their accounts for official purposes under fulfilling a specific statutory or public duty does the account become a, a public forum. So the Ninth Circuit case followed the more traditional route and the Supreme Court took cert. So we'll find out what they say about public forum and public officials.
0: I will confess to being a little uncertain about what the right answer is, but there's clearly, you know, all of the social media companies, as far as I can tell, allow you to block people who are obnoxious on your social media outlet for good reason. And, and I think at least in the Ninth Circuit, the people that were, were blocked were just spamming the comments so that it doesn't take much for something like that to make the entire page useless. And so that's a, that's a reason to allow blocking because other people who want to speak and, and read are actually encountering what amounts to pollution on the page. So I have some sympathy for the idea that you ought to be able to use tools that all of these services have decided are necessary. What's the best argument against that?
3: Well, I would say that you know you can still have a time, place, and manner restrictions. I mean, if, if if these these accounts are public fora, that doesn't mean that anything goes. You can have you know limitations on you know, repeated postings. You can have uh, limitations on obscene or discourteous conversations, just like you ha- would have in any public meeting. I think the the problem is, I mean, also in the, the, the what was alleged, at least in the Ninth Circuit, was that they were being blocked because they expressed views that were critical of the city of Poway, California's COVID policy. That's that's political discussion, and I, I would say that if. Public officials are going to use these accounts and give the at least the appearance that, that they are being open to the public and are doing the biz, people's business of soliciting comments and responding to citizens' concerns, then they should have to follow First Amendment restrictions.
0: So it, it's tricky because the time, place, and manner restrictions aren't necessarily something that Facebook's going to enforce for you. So you'd probably have to have a rule that says we have time, place, and manner restrictions, be respectful. Don't post the same thing over and over again, you know, a whole bunch of rules. And then you have to say, and if you do any of those things, we're going to block you, which is sort of overkill if you're trying to enforce time, place, and manner.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, I I guess so. You know, that would be a a kind of a draconian step. On the other hand, I mean, people are are escorted out of meetings when they're disruptive. You know, (laughs) there's a cost for running these 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 forums. I think the, the downside of, of allowing them to, to block without any First Amendment restriction is that they're able to sort of create this simulacrum, the appearance of being open and being responsive when, in fact, it could just be a sort of Potemkin village. And yeah, fair I, I think enough. That's- that's a yeah,
0: you're right. If the entire dialogue appears to be happening there, but people with certain views aren't talking because they're not allowed to talk, then you've distorted the debate. Well, it will be a fascinating set of arguments. Okay. Well, while we're talking blocking and toxic sites, let's talk a little bit about Twitter, which came in for what I thought was a, a hit piece from rest of the world saying that they examined Twitter's Automatic database. They report automatically to a Lumen database that's run, I think, by the Berkman Center, and they had their responses to government takedown requests had gotten far more passive than under past management. That's at least the the burden of the article, as I saw it, Justin.
2: Yeah, and as mentioned, you can go look at the data in the lumen database you can just go look it up the company has not filed a transparency report since musk took over and so that's in part
0: and and i'm i'm betting they never will
2: Uh, no they probably never will because the people writing it (laughs) quit or were fired or, or whatever else so but but you can go actually look at the data if you want to there's sort of an open database there but yeah, as you said, the article, there was some phrasing that was a bit confusing because part of it said that Twitter did not refuse any requests it got. But then if you go look at the coding, they are clear that there was a higher rate of compliance with both content removal orders and with data access requests. But that in some cases, the response was not marked. So it's not clear whether or not Twitter right. actually took action there. And um, in some
0: cases, they, they complied partially instead right. of in full but their partial compliance rate was was way down from the past
2: right yeah so partial compliance rate had changed and then the full compliance rate had gone up and in particular the article focused on india and turkey both of which you know in recent years have been submitting increasingly authoritarian sort of things to suppress free speech that contradicts the government line. So yeah, so I'll just say, of course, Twitter, as it has with every other news article, did not reply to a request for comment. Actually, I, um, I, I, but, my
0: memory is that there was this very sweet line in the, this, the story. They said, Twitter responded with an emoji. Yes. And, 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 and you have to know that, in fact, if you send an email to the communications office at Twitter, Elon Musk has decreed that you will get back a poop emoji.
2: Right. Yeah. Respect for the press. But yeah, so, so I'll just say it's an interesting story. I'd be curious to learn more about the types of requests that were filed. As you said, there was sort of a grouping of some of them were data access, some of them were content removal. And so particularly interested in that, um, especially in a country like India, right? There's been so much tension there for years over the MLAT process. And that was, of course, in part a big reason they wanted data localization. For a while in India, was to force companies to put stuff where they thought their law enforcement could get it. But at the same time, a big part of this is content, and you know, for instance, asking Twitter to take down tweets about a documentary about Modi that right. did not reflect well on Modi. So, it, it'll, yeah, like you said, I'm not confident either. They'll issue a full transparency report, but curious if journalists can learn more about specifics here?
0: Well, I think Elon Musk is showing Silicon Valley that you can run a social media company with a whole lot less people than most of the social media companies have been telling their shareholders. And This is part of it. It became the done thing to do transparency reports and to, to hire lawyers to fight local governments when they asked you to comply, but that just costs money and you have to ask when you're keeping your budget, keeping within your budget, what do I get out of that? And I think in Silicon Valley, the assumption was, well, our users will love us more because we're standing up for their rights. And, you know, I think if you said to Elon Musk, well, your users will love you more if you do this, he'd say, I'll need evidence because they don't seem to love me that much now. And so I, I wonder if, as with how many people you can fire and still run your operation, he may also be teaching Silicon Valley that there's a whole lot of activity that makes ordinary liberal Obama alumni feel warm and fuzzy uh, that you don't actually have to do. And if you don't feel like spending the money, you might as well just stop. Right? Maybe but, just
1: draw out a feature where if you pay five bucks extra a month, then they'll fight government requests for your, uh, <laughs> there your, you go. your, your account information.
2: Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. well, the, 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 latest, <laughs> the latest feature this morning is if you add, you can ch- check this. If you add former blue check to your bio, it'll show up a blue check for free on your page for about three or four minutes. So um, <laughs> there's, there's that. But like you said, I mean, I think, the, of course, the caveat is to that sort of view is, you know, Twitter was not that profitable to begin with. And, you know, there are a ton of advertisers who have left the platform. Right. And so, like you said, there is a question of that fact of, you know, most businesses probably don't want their ad next to some sort of neo-Nazi post or something. And you know, you, I, you know you can I, I, Justin,
0: I hear that all the time from, from people who want more censorship But yeah, I've never seen an ad next to a neo-Nazi post, and I can't believe it happens very often. And sure, there are people whose business model is to try to find those things and embarrass people into stopping their advertisements. But I can't believe that it's really a problem for advertisers that they've got lots of customers who are saying – I was perusing a bunch of neo-Nazi posts, and I was shocked to discover that you're advertising there. I mean, you kind of wonder well, who are these people that, that are perusing, but shocked to uh, to find that somebody else is advertising. I just think this that's part of a a boycott mechanism that's being run by the left to to try to impose their their enthusiasm for censorship, rather than a real business problem.
2: Like I said, uh, you know, I'm not an advertiser. I think the sheer number of advertisers who have left the platform like you said there's a question of motivation there but you know it it is an interesting question in terms of you know what 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 makes people stand these platforms and go i mean to your point there was also right i think of the facebook case on the uh, the flip side right when when former president trump was maybe suspended or i'm not remembering the specifics but there were all these reports of how the whole company was going to collapse and you know a flip case of oh, actually most people kind of stayed on facebook even his supporters so yeah it's, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's an it interesting turns out
0: it turns out that network effects are just enormously important. Yeah, I mean, there yeah. there there's there's been half a dozen alternatives to Twitter that have risen and fallen since Musk took over, and there's there's a couple more in the works. It's really hard to motivate anybody but the most extremely upset to
2: move someplace else. Yeah, and the other platforms aren't aren't even that good anyway. I mean. Like you said, it also just underscores like it does take a lot of time and investment to engineer really usable, good interface platforms and things like, you know, Mastodon, which I did join, like not a great interface. A lot of the features are bad. The notifications don't make any sense. So it it does take, you know, work to build these platforms and it's easy to forget that too.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's move to China. Adam, there was a Really interesting, you know, at Citizen Lab, I'm, I, I'm of two minds about Citizen Lab, but the one thing they always do is really good technical work on internet technology. And this was a look at search censorship in China that really made past studies look pretty amateurish.
3: Yeah, so, you know, what really caught my eye about this is, is how we know more about The censorship by Chinese platforms than we know of by American platforms. I mean, this was a very good, sophisticated effort to sort of reverse engineer the censorship rules that Bing and Baidu and, and other dominant Chinese platforms use. And, you know, this has always been the case that we actually have some very good scholarly studies about, you know, censorship of China, Twitter and things like that. But these techniques are never used to America for American platforms. Right. um, And
0: and in fact, all this practically everything that they censor in China, by category at least, is censored here.
3: Yes, exactly. And, you know, sort of as, as an academic, you know, I sometimes think you know, I talk to the people in communication school. like, so well, why don't you study this? I mean, you know, these these are, you know, very interesting techniques of, you know, coming up with terms that essentially have zero censorship valence and then building up on them, using, figuring out strings that are the ones that seem to motivate them. And they did a good job of, of sort of reverse engineering what China does. And we don't do it for our own platforms. Um, and I think that speaks a lot to, you know, the discussion, let's say, in you know, the Texas social media law and... Florida social media law, which, you know, there's a, which also have really rather stringent disclosure requirements for how the algorithms work. Do we really need that? Or do we just need, you know, some generous foundation to give $50 million so that we can do our own studies? Well, a generous
0: foundation that isn't already paying for people to do more censorship, which seems to be the the biggest problem. Actually, there's a, there's a hint in this study because of what they could find, because they're looking at Chinese internet services. And it turns out that there is one American service that is available in China, and it's Microsoft Bing. And so they they ran all of their censorship tests against Microsoft Bing and what they found was you know compared to Baidu was worse. Bing actually is, is is doing more censorship of political and religious and maybe a little of religious but political speech is just no doubt that uh, right. Bing was more aggressive than 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 Baidu
3: right well i mean you know i think you know we can obviously all think of reasons why. I mean, Bing is being, you know, afraid of being kicked out. And I I think perhaps Baidu has a, you know, closer relationship with those people who are censoring and thus can cue closer to the, to the real rules as they are. But Bing is, is, is working under a sort of much more, you know, I guess, arm's length relationship with the Chinese authorities and has to be more careful. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a great study. And I, 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 if there are any communication social scientists out there, you know, please. Yeah, now, please, now do the US.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, so I, I do want to say, to be fair to, to Bing, as listeners may remember, I've started trying to illustrate the blog posts about the podcast with graphics that I know I can't be sued over for a copyright infringement, which is to say, I asked Bing to create new graphics and then use those. And I was looking to do something with Taiwan and China. And I asked for the Taiwan flag. And I was told that that violated Bing's terms of service. (laughs) And then, you know, somebody pointed out to me, well, you can't get the Chinese flag either. And I said, but I can get the American flag I get the German flag. Somebody at Bing is capable of being embarrassed because today, if you go to image creator on Bing, you can get a Chinese flag and you can get a Taiwan flag. So uh, you, you, you,
3: you are the free speech crusader still. <laughs> you there you go. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. Let's see. Michael, Rob Joyce from the NSA, who is who worries about cyber attacks was interviewed like everybody else in the government who worries about cyber attacks at RSA and the post- covered it. I didn't see too much new uh, in that other than, you know, he pointed out, and this is relatively new, this was classified six weeks ago, that NSA does a lot of 702 investigation of cyber threats. And so as they think about what are they going to have to do to persuade people to renew it, they started to emphasize the fact that cyber threats are a real part of what 702 can do.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. As you mentioned, Rob Joyce is the, the head of the cybersecurity directorate at NSA. It is puzzling why NSA and other parts of the government weren't talking more about the value of 702 and the things they can use it for. We're seeing a, a shift there in terms of talking about China and cyber and those China and China and cyber together, as well as the, the use of 702 for fighting drug cartels and stopping the flow of fentanyl into the country. One other part of the Rob Joyce interview at RSA that I thought was was notable. He's just talking about just how brazen China is in, in its hacking efforts. I mean, you might recall back way back in 2015, we thought we had a deal with them to stop espionage, yes. uh, IP theft, right? How my how things have changed. You know, his, his quote: "When they get caught, they don't they don't slink away and try to cover their tracks. They just don't care, right? Shamelessly didn't care." is his, is his wording. So, you know, things things with China continue to get worse, not better, uh, on the cyber front.
0: Yeah. I have a, an article coming out in Lawfare with Rick Salgado sometime this week about why CISOs ought to be heard in this 702 debate, because if we're using 702 to do uh, early warning on attacks, they should be supporting the program. And they probably should be saying, so you're not doing that warning business where two days after the attack. Oh, the field office the agent, special agent in charge shows up in my CEO's office and tells me about it. I need to know like 45 minutes after you find out. So there's an opportunity for CISOs not only to help sur- revive the program or c- c- help it survive, but also to shape the way it's used so that it works better for for people in industry. So that's uh, that's a a free preview of what we're saying in our our article in Lawfare. All right. The EU, I love this story, Adam. It has singled out 19 tech giants for its online content rules. And I counted one European company in the (laughs) list of 19.
3: Well, you know, th- there are not all that many great European internet platforms, so you know, maybe our our suspicion of of of, of, of protectionism. And <laughs> but you're right; it's it's not surprising, and 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 these are pretty bad. I mean, I've, I mean, I'm I, no, I mean, they are they are terrible from a free speech perspective. You know, the the way the the Digital Services Act works is is part of of the big push by the EU to get it. You know. regulate the platforms what it does is look if you're designated as a large internet platform you have special duties to essentially censor speech and what they have to do—it's—it's it's pretty, pretty onerous and and bad from a free speech perspective. They have obligations to prevent abuses of their systems, including oversights and independent audits of their risk management measures. And you know, I, I always love how censorship is always put in the terms of you know tort or you know disease management. And the, these risks are you know disinformation or election manipulation, cyber violence against women. Harms to minors online and hate speech. So certainly harms to, to women or minors is is, is is certainly understandable from an American First Amendment perspective, but certainly what is disinformation, what is hate speech, what is election manipulation? You know, these this law essentially requires the platforms to follow European government as as to what it use these things are. And I think it will have a very deleterious effect on free speech in Europe, and I hope it doesn't have a spillover in the United States.
0: But it's bound to. I, it, one of the things that has puzzled me, I guess it shouldn't completely puzzle me, is the complete lack of interest in Congress in the fact that our free speech rules are being written in Europe and they're going to reflect European values, uh, which are way to the left of ours. I'm guessing that pretty much anything Speaker McCarthy says would be viewed as borderline hate speech in Europe. And yet nobody is saying boo about it, probably because, at least on the Republican side, there are no businesses that are upset about this, and some of them would be upset at anything we did to try to stop the Europeans from doing this, because it would mean telling U.S. companies they can't obey European law, at least as to U.S. content, and that would be expensive and problematic. So there's there's not a big organized lobby to do something about it, but it's like the most significant intrusion on US sovereignty in the last 20 years.
3: No, I mean you're absolutely right. I mean look at GDPR. Uh, you know, essentially that was a European scheme that most Americans are now picking up and, and, and most American companies feel obligated to follow. And you're right. Unfortunately, we all know in DC there's a path of least resistance. You know, re- Republicans aren't going to upset big tech. And for big tech, you know, the, the choice is, oh, we could get into this big, you know, legal Issue about the effect, the transnational effects of of domestic law, or we could just you know. Do what, you know, what is it, the president of the EU Commission, what is it, Ursula van der Leyen tells us to do? And so I think they'll just you know, follow Ursula. It's just easier.
1: Well, I think the key thing, Adam, is that what Ursula van der Leyen wants them to do is not that different than what the big tech platforms are doing, anyways, yeah. right? Maybe there'll be some some minor differences around the edges, but these are, I suspect, for the big tech platforms, these categories of content censorship that you've laid out are, are pretty close to the policies they're following. So So it may even be helpful to them that when there's a complaint in the U.S. about an American who's had content taken down as disinformation, they can say, well, the Europeans made us do it. It gets them off the hook for something they wanted to do in the first place.
0: So I think the other thing that's going on here is we've seen the gradual breakdown of what I used to call the magaziner consensus, which is that this is such a wonderful gift, the internet, to the world that we can't screw it up by regulating it in ways that are in which one country contradicts another's regulation. We should be very careful about doing this. And for a long time, that meant that the U.S. rules were more or less followed, and then finally Europe just said, no, nope, no, nope, we're going we're gonna to set rules that are different from the U.S., but if they do it, anybody can do it. Turkey can do it. India can do it. China can do it. Russia can do it. Oh, China was already doing it. Russia can do it, and then everybody is going to realize, hey, there's actually no reason why I can't say, if you do business in Utah— You're going to run your service the way I want it run for kids in Utah. Or frankly, and I hesitate to say this because we're going to regret it, New York City could say, well, we've got some rules, too, for anybody who offers the Internet or a social media service in New York City. And there's nothing to say they don't have jurisdiction.
3: I think that's right. And China led the way. they created their own sort of segregated version of the internet and I, 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 I we have a choice. We can you know create our own rules and that will be headache for the internet companies. Good thing for the internet lawyers, however. or we can have our democratic values, Made real in, in, the, in the communications networks that we rely upon. You know where I stand. I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I know you've been depending <laughs>
0: the the ability of Florida and Texas to say we got some rules for you too, right here. Right, uh, and,
3: and, and actually, I, I was you know, the co-author of the report that was the uh, basis of the Utah law. So you know, I, you okay, <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. So really, this this whole problem is it's it's just Adam Can do uh, in his many guises. All right. right. <laughs> Okay, did you happen to help Iowa challenge the cybersecurity regulations that the EPA imposed under the guise of an interpretation for cybersecurity? Because I think that's a case worth following, Iowa and two or three other states now have challenged what I think is the most eminently challengeable of all the cybersecurity regulations that have come out, which is the the EPA's interpretation that uh, there has to be a variety of cybersecurity measures and reports undertaken. And there's very little statutory or really even past historic support for imposing cybersecurity rules on local water systems but EPA under considerable pressure i suspect from the um, administration which really wants to regulate in cybersecurity and which knows that our water systems are completely lacking in good cybersecurity regulation the EPA did it anyway and couldn't get what it needed from Congress. So it just said, well, we're interpreting some old law. That's going to be challenged. And I would have thought Iowa had a pretty good standing case, a pretty good substantive case. And so this one could be a significant blow to the cybersecurity program of the administration. So that's what's new there. I want to ask Michael about this story I worked at NSA and follow it pretty closely. There was a story in the Washington Post about the former director, Director Alexander, and it it's again a kind of a quasi hit piece on him for taking a $700,000 Saudi cybersecurity consulting deal. After the Saudis had dismembered Khashoggi in the in their Istanbul embassy, Michael, I'm not sure I I can really say he shouldn't have taken that. He probably had been pursuing that and had a lot to teach the Saudis about cybersecurity. But it sure doesn't look great.
1: Yeah, this is the kind of story, Stuart, that is about behavior that's perfectly legal everyone followed all the rules and is exactly the reason why everyone hates Washington, right? Yeah. You know, although on the balance of things when you talk about Keith Alexander taking a contract to help the Saudis with cy- cybersecurity, I- I'd rather the Saudis have good cybersecurity than bad cybersecurity, right? But that's, right, that's and I'd rather they interest. get them from um,
0: us than from the Russians.
1: <laughs> or the Chinese, as they are increasingly doing with yes. their, you know, other you know, technology, and especially in the defense area, of Chinese and influence in the Gulf states. So, you know, the the fear, of course, and, again this again i mentioned this is why people don't don't like the swamp is that when these generals uh, when these admirals are are in their positions in the military that they are thinking not entirely about what's in the u s national interest and are thinking about their post government employment possibilities and are you know going to be wary of antagonizing the Saudis or anybody else who might potentially give them the contract after they leave right yeah. uh, that they that they that they won't they won't discharge their duties in the way you hope they would because they're thinking about those post-government employment opportunities. Now, in the the IC, actually, I think in the Intelligence Authorization Act last year, actually put in place some pretty, there's some pretty stringent restrictions in place for senior IC leaders with respect to employment by foreign governments after they leave office for a period of, I think, about two and a half years. So I think to some degree, this problem has been addressed, but only with respect to the IC. And there's plenty of senior folks at DOD who don't fall into IC components who you still I, you know, have this problem
0: for. I remember when that that law was going through, and, and and it was a little bit of an overreaction, but the underreaction was it caught military people who had served in the intelligence community in a particular. We we still don't know what jobs are covered here, but it left out all of the combatant commanders and the people who are most likely to be kind of in the position where they're meeting with people and they're thinking to themselves, you know, next year, I might need a job from this guy. And that does change your position.
1: Yeah. So over to the armed services committees to do some work there.
0: All right. Okay. Adam, this is a case where the the province of Quebec seems to be making the rules for social media. It's a case where Google was sued for a very erratic pattern of taking down and then not taking down search results about a guy who to to read the story certainly suffered from a false report that couldn't be extirpated from google
3: right and it was a situation which the 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 quebec court balancing in ways which honestly i don't Understand because I never quite understand the way Canadian law works, provincial and national law and requirements to say that yes, under the libel laws, a search result was could be the basis for a, a libel claim. For me, what was most interesting about it was and, that the, and they actually
0: we should say the libel was a claim that he was a pedophile uh, yeah, and a con well, man, and it seems nobody seems to be defending the person who posted that. So it looks to me as though the Court agreed. Yeah, you're, this, this is false. I, I don't quite understand. If, if a court says it's false, why would Google leave it up anywhere?
3: Well, there's there's the old Bird v. Hassel decision out of California, in which the which Google said, oh, uh, I think it was Google said, look, even if a court tells us that it that 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 certain content is is libelous or unlawful, Section two hundred and thirty protects us, and we are we are immune both from monetary damages and from injunctions. So I guess, and
0: and and we all remember when Quebec became the fifty first state. (laughs)
3: Well, that is sort of relevant because what interests me about this case is what was brought up was the Canada-U.S.-Mexico trade agreement in which our, our, our tech friends inserted a Section 230 requirement. Which was somewhat softened. I, you know, I, I, I had a little experience of that back in the Trump administration, and it, it, it didn't work. The Canadian court said, "No, we're not obligated by this trade agreement to follow Section Two Hundred and Thirty jurisprudence of the United States." So I, I think, you know, we have to put this one under the balkanization of the legal legal jurisdictions of the internet file. All right.
0: So one of the discussions in the debate over TikTok is, can TikTok be replaced? And I thought it it was kind of interesting to see suggestions from Meta that they think their Reels feature maybe can compete with TikTok. Justin, it looked like a, a fair amount of puffing, but there was some reason to think that Reels was actually achieving Takeoff Velocity.
2: It's a lot of puff, but you know, the short is, right? I mean, Facebook's revenue for a variety of reasons has been down quarter over quarter for in a row a while now, right? I mean, they spent a billion dollars on this virtual reality thing that doesn't even even look good and things like that. So very much searching for what is you know what is the growth engine. And as you said, they've been talking about reels, which is short form video content. The thing that was not mentioned in the article, which I find amusing is that, Many, many reels are actually just reposted from TikTok. Like a lot of reels, if you actually go look at them, they have the TikTok video logo that someone has uploaded. And so it's not even, you know, so are people using it? Absolutely. You know, and TikTok or ByteDance rather bought musically in 2017, which is the root of the CFIUS authority here, which was a U.S. company. So certainly, you know, U.S. firms obviously are doing a lot of innovative stuff in this space and could create. Alternatives, but for Facebook to say that Reels is—which they didn't say—but to sort of suggest that it could be a TikTok competitor, I think is just a bit funny because it's—it's it's often you know just old TikToks that are posted on the platform two weeks later. Yeah,
0: fair enough. On the other hand, if I were TikTok and people were reposting everything they did on TikTok on Reels, I would say so. If the U.S. said you can't have TikTok. How upset would they be? They just posted on Reels to start. So yeah, it, 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 it it is a bit of a threat. OK, I, I, I agree with you. There are uh, a lot of this stuff saying, well, we're going to be revenue neutral this year, says we aren't making any money on it now. And we probably won't until 2024 at the earliest. So it's not yet a competitor, but maybe it's a threat. And look, the stock is way up compared to the, the, the dregs, mainly because it looks like Zuckerberg has taken a leaf from Elon Musk's playbook and said, you know, I can just fire a whole bunch of people and still run everything. So I, my, my guess is that Facebook is going to find a way to, to come back and surprise us a little. But we'll see. All right, Adam. The D.C. Circuit ratified the dismissal of the state's case against whatsapp and instagram purchases by facebook which at one level isn't a surprise that they, they bought them almost 10 years ago but they left in place the ftc case so what do we what do we learn from what the dc circuit did with this antitrust case and what's it mean for the ftc case
3: well The discussion of sort of the legal – the substantive legal issue was rather limited, which was, you know, refusal – essentially refusal to deal and vertical foreclosure for for the API computer interface so that, you know, developers could develop programs for the platform. And most of the court's decision was about latches and whether or not latches, which is, of course, the equitable doctrine of – you know sitting on your hands for a long time applied to states and because it doesn't apply to the federal government so okay so but it apparently applies to states at least in the DC circuit but then they said well they went on to say the substantive issue which is you know look the companies have no obligation to provide api in a non-discriminatory manner it does not constitute an antitrust violation there is no ver- vertical foreclosure issue See trinko, end of story and i think that that signals this the way most federal courts are looking at antitrust claims certainly and i think it will have some resonance i don't know a lot but some with some of the ftc actions some of the other legal actions I mean,
0: yeah i can't I, I i feel i'm with with you that plus you know, the, the court pointed out just how long it's been and how in reliance on not having been challenged, all kinds of business decisions have been made that wouldn't have been made if this had been challenged earlier. And so there's, a, there's more unfairness to unwinding it now than there would have been before, which just raises the burden on the FTC to make a good case. The FTC just keeps wandering off into these fights that it, it, it obviously wants to pick but I can't see, it can't, it can't win all of them. And I wonder if it can win any of them. It's just almost suicidal. It's, it's, like, it's like Russian troops in the Donbass. You know, you, come on, guys, let's go out there and find those mines. Just step around until you find one. And to, to send the lawyers out with such weak cases has to be really bad for the FTC's morale
3: yeah they keep on trying the same old things over and over and over again things that are, are get constantly shot down the same old theories and courts aren't buying it you know and what what that means you know maybe they should find one thing that, that that really could work or you know reassess their their role as the you know government enforcers of antitrust laws
0: yeah or or maybe they could start recruiting their lawyers in Russian prisons <laughs> Okay. Brazil. There was a, a ban on Telegram. Again, I, I, they, you know, The Brazilian courts do like that. And it was very quickly overturned on appeal. Adam, what was most interesting there, was, though, was that Telegram said that we cannot comply with this order to turn over the neo-Nazi communications, and so we're not going to do it. And the Court of Appeal said, well, we're not going to ban you, but we are going to charge you $200,000 a day when you don't comply. That's got to be a pretty expensive and maybe unsustainable penalty for Telegram.
3: Yeah, I, I'd be surprised if Telegram continues business and if they have actually have to pay it. You know, Da Silva has been, I think, has been very upfront about having a, a real you know, discomfort, even hostility towards social media companies. And also, I think with Telegram, it, it, it's interesting. You know, what sort of information can Telegram provide? It purports that it, most of its messages are encrypted. You know, is it? And, and of course, Markets itself as a privacy-first kind of platform, and you know, maybe it just isn't bind, and it may just be the Telegram telegram will have to depart from brazil which would be i think the third entry in today's podcast in the balkanization of the internet
0: yes exactly no that's that's the theme for sure for sure and i've got more than just a couple of updates open ai remember was banned in italy but they're back they've reached a settlement and what i thought was interesting about that because it, it, it shows how europe is feeling on its back foot about artificial intelligence, as it should, they were let back in on the grounds that they were going to go tell people about how they collected the data that they used, which uh, they collected it by scraping a bunch of public data, which you might think was fine, it's public. But no, not in Europe. You still have to get consent to get pub- collect people's public data but they didn't. There's no way they can go back in time and get consent. They're going to get a kind of after-the-fact notice and you know, quasi-consent, I guess. And if that's all you need to be GDPR compliant with artificial intelligence, it's an enormous victory. I don't think that's probably going to stick, but I thought it was very interesting that Italy backed off as fast as it did and in as transparently weak a fashion as as it did. So God bless open AI. They gave the Italians just enough so that the Italians could save face as they racked down. That's how I read it. And then finally, speaking of AI regulation, we can't have a, a show now without discussing it. Four different US regulators joined in a statement to say that they are going to go after artificial intelligence bias and they don't need no stinking authority that they don't have already. And I think they're right. They They're going to claim that any use of artificial intelligence in real estate or rental that doesn't produce the kind of proportional representation of minority groups that they want is inherently biased. And anybody who offers AI is not going to be able to disprove that. And so they're going to have to change their systems to incorporate quotas into it. Same thing with the FTC. Same thing, of course, with the EEOC, which does employment. The FTC is more or less saying, we can say anything that Produces biased results from AI is a violation of our unfair or deceptive practices rules. They may be, you know, off to invade the Donbass again with that, but I think we should expect that there will be very heavy pressure on anybody who does AI to just shut up and surrender and build the quotas in for anything that is accused of bias. And that's my fear about this, that it'll be a lot like GDPR or the European censorship rules, that... People will do what they wanted to do anyway and say that the the government made them do it. All right. That is it for us. Thanks to Justin. Thanks to Adam. Thanks to Michael for joining us. Look, we are looking for somebody to do our sound editing. If you're interested in doing that, it's a paid internship position. And if you negotiate hard, we'll thank you in every episode by name. Our last, you know, Mark Chernozik, who's doing it now, is going to law school. And this is going to be a feature of his law practice any minute now. So there's real career enhancement in doing this for the Cyber Law Podcast. We've got a new email. Send your CVs and bios, if you're interested in this, to cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com and leave us a review especially if you you know if you say you're also interested in being an intern it will count in your favor when we interview you this has been episode 455 of the cyber law podcast
2: this whole problem it's just adam can't do